Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you, as ever, for tuning in wherever you are around the world. And as ever, we've got a lot to cram in today. Before I get going, thanks for those of you who tuned into the live stream at King's Place last week. There's some breaking news. The audience predicted, we do predictions at the beginning for those of you who, for some reason or other, haven't tuned in. Uh, Not what we hope will happen, but what we think will happen. And this month I asked the audience of unreliable narrators whether they predicted Keir Starmer will be leader of the Labour Party at the time of the next general election. And you've probably read it everywhere. It was on the front page of all the newspapers, led the 10 o'clock news that evening. More than 80% of the audience that tuned in, and most voted, and it was a big audience, uh, they predicted that Keir Starmer would be leader of the Labour Party at the time of the next election. And as far as I remember, I agreed with that prediction, partly because Labour never seems to get rid of its leaders. I'm not 100% sure, but I mean, you can't be 100% sure about any prediction in the current world of British politics. Um, There is a fragility about the Starmer leadership, which is interesting. But I mean, that there was a fragility about the Ed Miliband one, there was about the Jeremy Corbyn one in opposition, there was about the Neil Kinnock one. It's tough being Labour leader in opposition. And you can see the flaws so vividly and the stakes are so high. Anyway, that's what our prediction was, that Starmer would indeed be leader at the next election. And we had a great evening, I think. Thank you for those of you who tuned in. I really enjoyed it. Um, Maybe you all hated it. I don't know. No, but anyway, the next one, by the way, is April the 15th. Uh, There will be more predictions, live questions throughout the night, and my reflections on two or three political events. Today, if it's okay with all of you, I'm going to reflect a bit about flag waving and what that tells us about a country, uh, perhaps a bit of the BBC on flags and its current state of mind as well because it's connected. And with then we've got some great questions ranging from the importance of cabinet ministers in terms of the fate of a government, a bit more on Starmer. Uh, and all kinds of things. So, uh, yeah, that will be towards the end of the podcast. So, before I start talking about flags, I'll cue it in with a question from Phil O'Dell. Uh, uh, Phil says uh, in an email, I'm re-watching your talks on Prime Ministers we never had and loving it all over again. Oh, right, yeah. Uh, that's on YouTube, I think, Phil. I uh, did a series of talks about ministers we never had on modern Prime Ministers, on key political turning points, and on when parties split, Uh, going back to the old Corn Laws and Robert Peel with that one. Um, You can see those on YouTube. But anyway, Phil's question is this. uh, What is this amazing period we have recently gone through in British politics? Unprecedented. He points out Is it so extraordinary? Off the top of my head, I can list events in my lifetime, such as Suez, Profumo. God, how old are you, Phil? Uh, Don't answer. Don't answer. Um, I'm sure still youthful. 
Anyway, he can remember Suez, Profumo, devaluation in 1967, in place of strife, that was the kind of attempt by Harold Wilson and Barbara Castle, which all went wrong to reform the unions in the late 60s, Heath and the Miners, the IMF crisis, Thatcherism, John Major's Bastards, the TBGB show under New Labour, etc., is this period really so different and if so why are the financial crash brexit and covid all bigger than these past events then there's a bit of a twist he says it does seem like it but is it the reason i uh mentioned that uh interesting email talk about i'm a great fan of context that's real contextualization is in a way it sets up neatly my thoughts about this mad flag business, you know, waving the Union, Jack, global Britain, world-beating Britain. Um, the BBC in a state of a presenter is seen to remotely mock the need of ministers to appear draped in Union Jacks at any opportunity. Keir Starmer tries to find an even bigger Union Jack to be placed behind him when he makes his speeches um, and in a way to go back to Phil's question a kind of Suez is the perfect starting point for understanding this flag madness because it's funny that Phil should mention Suez he was alive with Suez I, I wasn't I hasten to add and the average age of my audience is so young it would this we're talking ancient history to most of you but actually it's coincidentally I've been writing a chapter for a book coming out this autumn uh, on Rab Butler and Suez played such a big part in his political career and his failure to become leader and when writing about Suez you really get a sense of Britain's lost place in the world for the first time after 1945 and all the ingredients were in place then that took slightly different forms with the Falklands War, with Blair's insecure determination to back America and its plans to invade Iraq, to the Brexit debate and the flag-waving now. So to be precise about Phil's question, are these more significant events? Well, some of them are you know, compared with the Blair Brown spat or John Major's row with his bastards in the cabinet, what we're living through at the moment is bigger, but it's all connected and it's about a country's uncertain place and insecurity. Just to remind those of you who didn't live through Suez, some of the ingredients, because I was so struck by the echoes with today. Nasser uh, of Egypt uh, attempted to renationalize the Suez Canal in the summer of, I think it was 1956, I think, forgive me, maybe it's 57, I haven't got the precise date with me. And Britain, and in fairness, France too, uh, found this wholly unacceptable. And Eden, who was Prime Minister, he had only been Prime Minister for a very short period of time, uh, decided he would take military action uh, to regain uh, control over the canal along with France. 
Now, the context in which he did this was so revealing. He compared NASA to Hitler and Mussolini. And Eden was framing all he was doing by the past. Eden famously resigned in the late 1930s uh, from Chamberlain's government because he opposed Chamberlain's appeasement policy. And like Churchill saw Hitler as a threat that had to be dealt with. And he saw NASA in the same light and this attempt to regain control of the uh, Suez Canal. Uh, so he was dictating events by the past. We were tough ultimately in 1939-1940. We, Britain, must be tough again. Butler, Rab Butler, who was in many ways a far more formidable cabinet minister than either Eden or Macmillan, but he had supported appeasement in the 1930s. And that was seen to be a terrible error of judgment, albeit retrospectively. Many Tories supported Eden's, uh, sorry, Chamberlain's appeasement policy. So Butler felt obliged to back Eden over Suez in order to, if you like, almost uh, address his failure to back Eden and his more uh, hawkish approach to Hitler in the 1930s. Butler actually had doubts about the wisdom of a military response taken speedily. His position was quite nuanced. But on the whole, he felt he had to back Eden, partly because of his failures of judgment as perceived in the late 1930s. So that was two calls based on Britain's past. Gateskill was leader of the Labour Party, leader of the opposition. He too felt the need to back Eden at first, uh, and he too compared Nasser to Hitler and Mussolini. The newspapers were going bonkers with their usual jingoistic, feverish, over-the-top, dangerous support for this latest military adventure, this latest display of British might and exceptionalism. But then something dramatic happened. Eden assumed he would either get the backing of the United States, it was President Eisenhower at the time, or that Eisenhower would not get involved and would be neutral. Instead, Eisenhower opposed the military venture, or certainly said other options had to be explored first. And in doing so, threatened all kinds of uh, economic implications for Britain to the extent that Harold Macmillan, who was Chancellor, who had originally supported Eden with greater enthusiasm than Butler, began to establish distance. He recognised that Britain could not do this without the United States. But at first, Eden, who had a highly developed sense of Britain and foreign policy, inevitably, he'd been a foreign secretary and his expertise in a way was in foreign policy. Uh, he still bought into British exceptionalism, not really questioning even 
whether Britain should play this differently if it didn't have an alliance with the increasingly mighty United States. In the end, as everybody knows, he had to pull back. And gradually, in the process of him pulling back Eden, everyone turned. In the same way as so many turned against the war in Iraq when it started to go badly wrong. So at first, the newspapers were hailing Blair's courage. Only the Independent and the Mirror were opposed. Um, the Tory leadership, wholly supportive of Blair, hailing his courage. When things went wrong, they turned, and Blair was subsequently tormented. He too had been influenced by the past, not least Suez. He assumed throughout his leadership that Britain had to be close to the United States and certainly couldn't break over a military venture. It was kind of Suez in reverse. This time the US wanted to act militarily against Iraq and he thought Britain therefore had to join in too. He was exposed and Britain's weakness was exposed in that context as Eden was with Suez. And so what happened was that Eden in the end had to resign Macmillan, who, uh, having been a keen supporter of the war, had become a more deft opponent than Butler, took over. And Britain then assumed that the so-called special relationship with America was fundamental in terms of Britain's place in the world. Now, later, Britain's relationship with Europe became central under Heath. Heath, too, had a clear sense of Britain's place in the world, and he put it in Europe. He was much less interested in the special relationship. But that, too, famously, as we've discussed so many times on this podcast, had triggered a series of storms that led to Brexit. And those Brexiteers thought they had a sense of Britain's place in the world. And once again, it was this exceptionalist view that Eden partly brought into um, when he was briefly Prime Minister. And in order to make sense of it, flag-waving has to become part of it. But I think it's deeply revealing how sensitive the flag-waving lot are about it. So anyone on the BBC who is seen to challenge this in any way at all is immediately leapt upon by the kind of Brexiteer wing of politics um, and is seen as sort of unpatriotic. But I look at it rather differently. Britain's place in the world has been confused, frankly, since 45 and certainly since Suez. And in that confusion, there is a need at times for an attempt to show muscularity. And it's called British exceptionalism. There's a question about British exceptionalism uh, coming up shortly. And in that exceptionalism, things tend to go wrong. Suez being an example, I think a lot of us think, not all of us who listen to the podcast think Brexit is another example. But we had British exceptionalism at the start of this pandemic a year ago, 
when Johnson thought for some reason that Britain uniquely would be immune to the virus. I hope when the public inquiry comes that there's a big focus on the speech Johnson made in Greenwich in February of last year when he talked about maybe it's Britain's role to stand alone to protect uh, the globe against this feverish overexcitement and uh, overreaction to a virus. British exceptionalism uh, is a product of confusion and insecurity um, and yet takes the form of assertions of muscularity, the flag waving being part of it. As I say, the BBC has got into trouble with that and, you know, they just, they need just to relax a bit about um, this British exceptionalism and having to reflect it as a funded broadcaster. Uh, there's a lot I could say about the BBC. I think its place in the media orbit is more precarious than for a long time. It doesn't have to be, but it has become so. It's very... Uh, poorly led on the whole at the moment and we've discussed on this podcast some of the things that they should be looking at like giving things room to breathe more in the light of the expansion of podcasts and that popularity they don't kind of discuss these things um, at the top of the BBC what they tend to focus on is various forms of tokenism of which the most recent is to do with the flag waving in a way is this news that they're going to send people out to around the country so like the i think the technology specialists have been sent to glasgow Newsnight it will come from different parts of the country pm will do so in the today program i fear that although i bet a lot of you support this but i fear it will be rather patronizing and unsatisfying, not least for the regions from which the programmes come. And that's not because of malevolent intention. The intentions are good, but it's just unrealistic. I mean, programmes last for a fairly short period of time, and they are carefully choreographed, and therefore in a Newsnight discussion, no doubt, you know, when it comes from Manchester or Newcastle or Birmingham or the Southwest, um, there will be a voice from the region in a discussion. Uh, but what does that really add in itself? No doubt there will be films sometimes or what we call packages on radio on the Today programme from the regions. But, but these can be done now. And certainly a presenter going up first class and going back first class as soon as possible, back down to London, is not going to discover insights and give those to the viewers or listeners as a result of that sequence. And I just think it's an attempt to sort of say, oh yeah, you know, the government understands the north of England, the Red Wall, we didn't at the BBC, yeah, it's all this kind of left of center metropolitan guardian reading liberalism even that is wrong you know i'll tell you just on the newspapers in news and current affairs i can absolutely exclusively reveal the most influential newspaper is the times um they a lot of the key editors and senior broadcasters turn to the times first um and 
the Times, it's you know the Tory supporting Times, but I mean, so so that's a caricature that's wrong. But I think this attempt to represent the country in this tokenistic way is the wrong way of going about it. I think in the 1980s, when the BBC was under considerable threat in the Thatcher era, John Burt became Director General, and he had a more intelligent and deeper way of exploring what's possible for an impartial broadcaster. He talked about the mission to explain, the need to make sense of things. He used to pose at meetings, you know, when news bulletins were discussed, running orders. Is this story significant? Or what is the significance of the story? Now that's where broadcasters unable to express a view or interpret events through a viewpoint can shed light, contextualise. He was a great fan of context, as we all are, uh, on this podcast. And, you know, it it just seemed more intelligent. I heard uh, the broadcaster Ian Dale saying the other day that Michael Cockrell's brilliant TV documentaries, which incidentally will form a archive of interest to historians for years to come. You know, he used to get former prime ministers to reflect on their lives and he used to film them watching archive of themselves and others. And it, it was a very effective and interesting way of um, making sense of these figures. And Ian Dale was saying such things now would not be commissioned, certainly not for BBC Two or BBC One. Those talks that uh, Phil O'Dell uh, referred to that I did, I mean, when I'm not comparing myself to him, but when the historian AJP Taylor did equivalent talks in the 70s, he was on kind of peak time BBC One. Why? You know, in this fractured media landscape, what is the distinct role for the BBC? And I think tokenism, and by the way, I'm a great supporter still of all women shortlists in the Labour Party and other parties, positive discrimination and uh, discrimination in all kinds of different ways. Uh, a, posit um, a positive discrimination in all kinds of different ways. Class, ethnic backgrounds and so on. But for that to be the kind of overwhelming guide, oh look, we're doing more from Birmingham. Oh, look, we're doing more from Leeds. That is too lazy uh, a way of going about things. And choosing broadcasters who meet a lot of the kind of box-ticking criteria is not enough. That, too, is a very kind of lazy, safe way of doing things. There is deeper analysis required, I think. I'd, it's Anyway, that's kind of tangential to flags, but you know what I mean? It's all... It is all connected because the BBC are responding to the government's view of what constitutes kind of UK-wide broadcasting because they won those red wall seats. And the BBC kind of timidly accepts that they never really understood what was happening in the red wall seats. Well, there are ways they could have done. I think sending a presenter there every now and again and that kind of thing is not is will not be the way to do it other than to produce some quite patronizing stuff but i hope 
I'm wrong about that. Okay, now over to your uh, questions. Let's um, uh, get going. Tom Bucknell asks, uh, I find myself depressed when I think about all the things Boris Johnson is getting away with, the cladding scandal, Northern Ireland Protocol, etc. When might the public mood on the government begin to shift, or what would make it shift? The second question is interesting, because I don't know, but what would make it shift? It seems to me that for Conservative governments to get into deep trouble and for the media, which is more sympathetic to Tory governments, to reflect that trouble, something very big hap has to happen. We know that uh, breaking bleak records for the number of people dead in the pandemic is not one that will uh, cause sort of outrage um, because that has happened and there hasn't been outrage. Um, although I, I, you still don't quite know how this is going to sort of pan out in the longer term. But the last time a Conservative government got into deep trouble, uh, you know, forget about the Theresa May Brexit stuff because that was, um, you know, kind of inevitable and unavoidable and wasn't sort of anyway necessarily something that was going to lead to the removal of a conservative government far from it she she lost a majority but she still be, stayed on in prime, prime minister in 2017 and then johnson won a landslide in 2019 it takes something of a huge economic shock uh, like britain falling out of the exchange rate mechanism at which point Tory supporting newspapers turn, the BBC influenced by those papers also changes its tone of reporting a Conservative government and then they're in real trouble. But it takes an economic shock, I think, uh, for it to happen. Um, and it might, uh, you know, let's, let's see. Uh, an interesting one from James Buckley, not least because of the location, which I'm so envious about, as many of you will be. Uh, James writes, I listened to the pod and watched the King's Place show in my kitchen. However, if it helps, my kitchen is in North Portugal, Aca Paradise, just beside the Mino River that marks the border with Spain. We have sea, mountains, and I promise the best food and wine in the world. Thank you, James. Is, is there anything that's making you miserable at the moment? Could you let us know, please, what's making you down? I mean, that's all too blissful. Um, and what are you doing out there? Let, let us all know. And is there more work out there for all of us? It sounds fantastic. Anyway, um, James writes about Keir Starmer. I'm among the majority who think Starmer will lead Labour into the next election, reflecting the King's place. Um, vote. He comes across as a genuinely nice person. Yeah, he is. I've met him a few times, socially as well as politically. He, he is an extremely nice, decent guy. Um, that doesn't necessarily make him a good leader. Back to James. And unlike many or most of Labour's top team these days, Starmer just carries the right kind of weight to fill the role. And he's pretty convincing at PMQs. You're obviously watching a lot of British politics from your idyll, James. That said, Starmer's big vision speech in February and the subsequent interviews encapsulated my doubts about him and his approach. Do you remember Starmer made what was billed as, you know, the biggest speech of the last 200 years kind of thing by his team uh, in February? Anyway, 
back to the email. It was the same with the Labour leadership election. Starmer tends to employ nice-sounding words that no one could disagree with, fairness, unity, justice. But one, he's not very forceful, driven, urgent enough when he addresses the voters at large. And two, he's not specific enough, fails to drive his arguments home with incisive facts, examples, evidence. Generally, he avoids subjects to the point of apparently missing gaping open goals. Brexit isn't the only example. I couldn't understand why on February the 18th, that was when he made this big speech, in inverted commas, he felt unable to simply state that a decade of underinvestment had made it harder, far harder than it needed to be for the NHS to respond to COVID, etc., I'm not sure anyone else in the current Labour leadership team clearly has what it takes to sustain the leadership role. I like Rachel Reeves, I like Angela Rayner, I thought Jess Phillips was superb on the media last Sunday, um, the Sunday before last now. Uh, she obviously has talent, but how well that talent would translate onto leadership is untested. I think that's a really good summary, James, of where we are, um, both about, um, and incidentally another reason why Starmer will probably remain in post. There really isn't anyone else breathing down his neck, um, which is both good for him and bad. Good in the sense that most leaders do have obvious successors lurking. He doesn't. Bad for him because it reflects a team that no one could claim is full of giant politicians at the moment at least some grow and maybe some of these will but that's the position at the moment and I agree yeah generally with your take on uh Starmer and that speech that was underwhelming and over over promoted in advance so um you know as as we've discussed before on this uh, podcast and at King's Place the stakes are really high because this we're coming up to the fifth successive Tory election win if that were to happen next time. So to stop that to happen, Keir Starmer has to win or at least become Prime Minister in a hung parliament. And um, I know the challenges are mountainous, but to be honest, they always are for leaders of the opposition, especially Labour ones because of the British media, but for Tory ones too. Um, but I think that's a very good summary. En enjoy where you are in Portugal. It's actually, I'm recording the podcast in sunshine here, you know, so we're in the same kind of idyll. Um, Gillian Oliver writes, uh, say, I enjoy your King's Place event last weekend. Oh, thank you. Uh, last week. Thank you very much. Gillian watched another event that there was a kind of Jewish book week hosted at uh, King's Place. And uh, she was watching Matthew Tancona talking about a book he's written where he says he was making the point that populists are in politics to win, not to govern. And they're always great at winning and hopeless at governing. And he says, apparently, Dancona, um, it was only the pandemic that forced this government into the engine room of government. And in contrast to Thatcher, Blair, Brown, and even the coalition, this lot don't have a governing instinct. Um, yeah, and apparently the uh, this Jewish Book Week uh, event is uh, on the King's Place website. Well, anyway, I've summarised it. No need to watch that. You can watch mine um, if you didn't watch on the day. Yeah, it's a very uh, interesting observation. And it is true when you think about it. Apart from Brexit 
and now the response to the pandemic, which has been all over the place. There is little sort of governing energy. I mean, between, you know, there was, do you remember when Johnson became Prime Minister on the night uh, in July 2019? Uh, he said he had a plan ready for social care. Well, no one has seen this plan. And then, uh, and then they said, oh, well, you know, we've got to consult with the opposition. Well, no opposition person has been consulted. Uh, so that was sort of out of the window. Every now and again, when Dominic Cummings was there, he was briefing, he was going to do X, Y, and Z. None of it happened. It was all done in a spirit of anger and pro provocation, but not legislative uh, implementation. Um, and I've always been fascinated by Nigel Farage talking about that point about campaigning rather than governing. The moment he got close to anything like taking responsibility for a policy, he ran a mile. So the day after the Brexit referendum, the triumph of campaigning, he resigned as leader of UKIP. Um, because at that point, even though he wasn't in the House of Commons, conveniently, um, he would have to take some responsibility for the consequences as the UKIP leader who had triumphantly forced the weak Cameron to hold a referendum, and then he won it, uh, Farage with others. Um, but then he resigned. And it's quite interesting watching others. I wrote a, uh, a book on uh, populism, and it's very interesting. Like when the AFD, the right-wing populist party in Germany, started to win seats, the, the election where they began to win quite a few seats uh, in the German parliament, the leader resigned the next day, just like Farage. When they get close to power, they run away. Anyway, thank you, uh, uh, Gillian, as, as ever. Much appreciated. Uh, Noah Keat has an interesting question about um, how important do I think cabinet, shadow cabinet ministers are in deciding the political successes or failure of a party with the electorate? While I imagine the vast majority of rock and roll politics listeners could name most of the cabinet and shadow cabinet, I should hope so, no, I should hope so. I can't help but think that this wouldn't be the case for most of the country, and I bet you're right about that. Can cabinet ministers ever be as recognisable with the public as the party leader? Can they ever have a prominent role in deciding whether a party wins or losing an election? Um, yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. The... You're right, absolutely, about recognition. And, you know, I think probably most people, or a lot of people, won't know who Keir Starmer is if they're shown a photo, and let alone anyone else in the shadow cabinet. And I suspect very few of the current cabinet would be known. Um, I mean, if someone was shown a photo of Robert Jenrick, would they be able to say who he is and what post he holds, even though we all know he's kind of linked to all kinds of twists and turns with within this uh, government and he's on the today program most mornings for some reason or another um so in terms of public prominence they are largely irrelevant although not wholly there is a sense sometimes uh that certainly with shadow cabinets they can sometimes convey a sense that they're ready for government and it's almost symbolic, but there is a sense that there are enough big players in post that there would be a smooth transfer of power if another if a new party won an election. 
uh, that was that was the kind of feeling although it was largely blair and to some extent brown in the build-up to the 97 election there was in that shadow cabinet jack straw david blunkett um, and others mo molan was very much across the northern ireland brief and so on um and to some extent so it was when cameron almost won in 2010 uh, there was it, it was partly artifice, but there was a lot of sense of energy from, I don't know, not just Cameron and Osborne, but Oliver Letwin and some of the others who were involved in uh, that kind of project about the state and there is such a thing as society, it's not the same as the state. Um, but on the whole, it was Cameron who was uh, publicly prominent. In determining who wins... I think the Chancellor and Shadow Chancellor are extremely important, um, both because economic policy is so central. And so even though they might not be as well known as their leaders, they won't be, um, that there's a kind of uh, centrality to them. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Noah. One final question from Matthew Johnson. And this is interesting. Don't you find politicians need a second chance? There's often more fire in the belly and clarity of thought after they leave the bubble of office, and yet we wipe out their experience and cast them aside at the first defeat. Ken Livingstone was a competent mayor because of his prior experience and the clarity of knowing what he wanted to achieve the second time round. Blair and Brown and others also have such ability but no medium to express their ideas and put them into being. Yeah, no, it's a really interesting question. Certainly in the generation we are living through now, there is a tendency for politicians to peak at quite a young age. I mean, it's kind of weird that Blair and Brown were, because it only seems yesterday to me, 1997. I can remember it so well. Probably most of you weren't born, but uh, they were young, you know, early 40s in 1997. Then they were kicked out by 2010, Blair in 2007, and no real platforms of significance to return to. Uh, and the Livingston is a good example. The And I think generally people leave politics too early. What was so impressive with the um, 1979 Labour cabinet. They lost that election. And I think nowadays, half of them would have buggered off into the city and made a ton of money. Instead, especially given what happened to Labour after that election, civil war. But Dennis Healy stayed, Roy Hattersley stayed, Tony Benn stayed, Michael Foote stayed. Um, they all carried on. Uh, Jim Callaghan, who stayed on as leader of the opposition and then remained an MP for some time. Uh, they didn't all rush off to the city or to present programmes about trains or go on strictly. They stayed to fight the battle within the Labour Party on their MP's salary. And um, now I think they would have all disappeared. In terms of whether many politicians have more than one great narrative arc in them, I wonder. So Blair and Brown, you know, framed arguments in 1997 and continued to develop those arguments up until the 2010 defeat. 
whether they would be fully equipped and fresh enough to look at the current set of challenges and do the same again, I wonder. Also, when you look at what's happened to people like David Cameron, you know, now being accused of sending texts to Rishi Sunak lobbying on behalf of some company he was about to make a ton of money out of, you wonder whether you would want a figure like him to have another platform. He's still got Brexit to explain as well in terms of his decision to hold that referendum and then lose it. So I, I sometimes think a huge amount is taken out of a leader or a senior minister uh, and actually to perform the same role again is, is problematic. But I think roles change and politicians should regard the vocation as a long one and not one just to get into government and then bugger off and earn a ton of money. And if that had been the case, and culturally that was acceptable in the modern era, uh, for example, Labour could... I, I did an interview for Radio 4 recently with David Blunkett. He is still very perceptive about politics. You may well disagree with him on some matters, but he is very interesting. And, uh, you know, unused since he was forced out of the cabinet for something or other uh, when he was a cabinet minister. There's a lot of talk about Hillary Benn and Yvette Cooper, but in fairness to them, they are still active in the House of Commons, uh, playing significant roles. But lots disappeared uh, when Labour lost the 2010 election, never really to reappear in any significant form uh, very quickly. And that tends to be the pattern these days. I don't blame Ed Balls, he lost his seat and, you know, then became a national treasure dancing badly on the telly. Uh, but that that is a weird career trajectory. Um, but those who didn't lose seats and who still disappear, I do think it's a loss to politics. No doubt their lives are enhanced by huge sums of money and all the rest of it. But politics is weaker and thinner. Uh, and, and the Livingston point, Matthew, was a really uh, good one. Livingston was, uh, I think he was more than competent. I think he was a highly successful mayor. Uh, the congestion charge in London was transformative and brave. And he had already been leader of the GLC, so he, had, he knew where to pull levers to get things done. That is an example of a successful second coming. Oh, uh, well, haven't we ranged all over the place today via your fantastic questions. So thank you for those. Keep them coming in. Here is the email address. And if you're out running or rowing or climbing while you're listening to this, um, the email address is coming in about 42 minutes, 43 minutes into this podcast. It's steverick14 at icloud.com. So you can write it down and let me know your latest thoughts all kinds of things whirling around us this week. Nicholas Sturgeon, the vaccine war, um, which is sort of a proxy for the Europe thing all over again. Oh, yeah. And the lockdown timetable and the lockdown constraints. And yeah, we've got to make sense of it all next time. Thank you so much for listening this time. Do leave a review if you can, uh, for reasons that I don't understand. That means you get more listeners. So that is great for all of us. In the meantime, have a fantastic week. Thank you. Thank you.